This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 19th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. What lessons can economics give us about the pandemic and the proper role of government? Well, for one, it's that government can likely only properly address the failures of markets and correct externalities. Tom Fiery's new study for the Cato Institute, Government in a Pandemic, digs into where the government should and shouldn't stick its nose. I started with the basic notion that government should only step in in cases of market failure. That is, cases where people acting privately, uh, making agreements between each other, uh, would have problems coming to uh, an agreement that would uh, benefit both sides or every side involved in, in this case. Communicable diseases is a classic example of a type of market failure known as uh, a negative externality, meaning that my interaction with someone else can affect other people who haven't agreed uh, to be affected. Uh, and, and obviously, as I talk, I'm emitting uh, vapor out of my mouth. I'm emitting tiny particles of water. Those can carry virus that other people can then inhale in and make them sick. So when I you know, I was thinking through this problem, I was thinking through market failure and negative externalities. And, and we see other examples of these like uh, pollution. Uh, I think last time I was on your podcast, you know, we jokingly talked about what would happen if I were to take my garbage and throw it into my neighbor's yard. That's me uh, inflicting a cost on someone else. This is another uh, example of this, of me inflicting a cost on someone else that the other person hasn't agreed to. That sounds fine. Um, but to the extent that the governments at the state, federal, and local levels have intervened, uh, you argue that they've done a pretty bad job. Correct. Just simply saying there's a market failure isn't enough to justify government intervention. You've got to go further and say uh, that the way government intervenes uh, will make uh, make the situation better. It has to pass a cost-benefit analysis. And it also has to do so in a way that doesn't violate established rights. And it has to do so in a way, you know, ideally that is the best possible option that government takes, um, you know, as far as a cost-benefit analysis. And so we've seen lots of examples of government interventions that don't seem to to pass one or more of those criteria. I mean, we've seen, you know, the case in Michigan where they prohibited boating, uh, at least early on in the spring when they were doing shutdowns. Well, prohibiting boating doesn't seem to provide any protection but it certainly does deprive people of liberties that they value. So that doesn't seem to pass a cost-benefit test. Maybe vitamin D. That's right. Uh, uh, Going out into the sunshine does seem to help lower uh, one's risk of catching this. Or if you do catch it, uh, it helps the body fight it off more quickly. Here in Pennsylvania, actually not very far from uh, my house, we had a case of a woman who got cabin fever uh, in late March, early April, and she just took a drive, didn't get out of her car, didn't, uh, uh, you know, didn't do anything risky other than just take a little drive around the neighborhood to clear her head. And the police pulled her over and uh, they asked her, you know, ma'am, why are you out? And she not realizing that this would be any problem at all. So I just needed to take a drive to clear my head. So they gave her a fine for violating the state stay at home order, even though the police interaction with her was far more dangerous than what she was doing, driving around in her car. Uh, You know, these decisions um, by state governments, uh, uh, you know, to uh, force people to stay inside these very crude decisions, uh, I think hurt people in a lot of ways. They, They reduce a lot of 
the pleasure we take in life, you know, things we want to do to get out. They also make us angry and make us less inclined to do the simpler things that would fight virus that are that are not so costly. So, you know, you hear cases like Michigan or this case in Pennsylvania, and, and there are other plenty of other states. And we've we've read about it here on in Cato and in other places uh, that are utter madness uh, that that seem to be governors. I don't want to say just showing off their power. I think I think that's a little strong, but it's they're acting simple-minded when they need to be acting very carefully and respecting people's rights to to do as much as they can without inflicting an externality on another person. Yeah, it's uh it's it appears at least to me to be a case of we must do something. This is something Therefore, we must do this. Exactly. That's that's a, I, I'd forgotten that line, and it's perfect for this situation. And you know, a little bit in defense of them, I'll, I'll give them this much. You know, especially in the spring, everyone was scared. Everyone was trying to to uh, you know do something to try to slow this thing down. This this looked, you know, it's 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 still frightening looking now you know, as we go here into you know in in November going into December, what we believe may lie ahead. You know, back in the spring, it was even more frightening. We had no idea how dangerous this was. And it seemed like it was extremely dangerous. So I can, I can understand the impulse of, okay, we've got to keep people safe. We've got to do it, but we have to stick to our principles and our, our, you know, we're a liberal country uh, in, in the traditional sense of liberal, that is uh, freedom, maximize freedom, except in very particular cases. There are some particular cases that government can, uh, uh, actions government can take that are in accordance with those values that will slow the disease. Things like asking, you know, having people wear masks, uh, social distancing in, in, in a sensible way uh, that should, you know, I won't say completely stop, but will significantly slow the spread of this without imposing very much cost on people or infringing on established liberties. Now, in terms of the federal response, we were applauding these reductions in regulatory barriers, in applauding restaurants that were now suddenly being allowed to behave in ways that had previously been prohibited, that is allowing people to buy single-serving, take-home alcoholic beverages, perish the thought. But at the federal level, at least, the a whole lot of the regulatory structure that existed prior to this pandemic remained in place and really stymied several efforts to get testing, and even, uh, in some cases, the development of the vaccine. Well, we know the old old saying that uh, birds got to tweet, fish got to swim, and regulators got to regulate. And it's incredibly hard to convince them to, to reel back, even when something is now proven to be ridiculous, which a lot of these regulations were that were temporarily suspended. There's been some calls in Congress to try to do a uh, an analysis of these regulations uh, that have been temporarily suspended to see if, my gosh, maybe we can, you know, let people continue to do these going forward. I suspect they will be more popular, and that will happen more than what people are fearing they will uh, now. That that we will see some some liberalization of these regulations. In that, I think people will be frustrated if these suddenly get snapped back on, at least the simpler ones, the, the things like, um, uh, you know, single serving drinks or, or, you know, allowing different restaurants to open. And, and that's actually, if I could uh, go off on a tangent just for a moment, but I think you've hit on something really important. Um, one of the great stories that will be told about one of, I, I hate to call anything about this great, but one of the really nice stories that will be told about these last few months is how much businesses have adapted uh, their operations 
to try to get around, to try to operate in the face of the virus and operate safely. We've seen uh, restaurants, fast food places, you know, dramatically configure to to delivery, to um, uh, to online ordering. Uh, you know, if I don't know if you've been to a Chick Fil A, uh, not to not to advertise anyone, but if you've been to a Chick Fil A, it is they have put a lot of research into how to pump people through their parking lots, through drive-through lanes that don't really exist. Um, in order to, you know, the, the, the nearest Chick-fil-A to mine, they could reopen their dining room. They're not even interested in doing it because they've so reconfigured and move, you know, to move people through. They're using their dining room now as a staging area for this stuff. And, you know, quite frankly, they're making more money and satisfying more customers. But we've seen this with all sorts of supply chains, the, the speed with which, if you think, if you remember back in March and April, at least here in central Pennsylvania, which is a farming area, uh, we saw uh, the supply of meat somewhat dwindle. Didn't weren't empty freezers, but a lot less supply and a lot less quality. And it's because of all the backups in the supply chain as places had to reconfigure uh, to try to you know get their workers you know make their workers safer, uh, and and uh, and also to simply just move uh, you know move the animals through uh, in a safe way, and. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's an ag science professor, and he is really impressed with how quickly they came up with uh, ways to separate, you know, the different processing areas to keep workers safe, how quickly they were able to uh, convert square footage of the factory into able to to move uh, more and more product through. It's a it's an amazing story. I don't even know where to begin because all you all I hear is anecdotes. Uh, but there is a great story to tell down the road about how American industry and and you know worldwide industry uh, have found ways around roadblocks that were created by this disease. And as uh, meat producers have adjusted, uh, it's interesting to watch. I am a barbecue person, uh, for better or worse, and I don't know if I've ever seen cheaper brisket at the store. It's almost a glut. Yeah, I had the same. Yeah, you know, I'm a barbecue person as well. And, you know, initially here, again, Pennsylvania is a, is a heavy meat packing area. And, and we're specifically where we I am in central Pennsylvania, a lot of uh, small meat packing operations. Initially, you couldn't find baby back ribs. You can only find spares. And I'm a, a baby back guy. You couldn't find quality brisket. And then they reconfigured and then the animals started coming through. And there was a little bit of a backup in the food supply chain. Uh, farmers are, you know, ranchers are very heady about when they bring their animals to market, that there's a steady flow through based on what they've established as the demand cycle. And once the uh, virus hit, it temporarily broke that supply chain. And so animals started backing up on feedlot. But man, once that uh, that blockage got removed, yet, like you said, you're getting, and and not just a lot of meat, a lot of good quality meat, because quite frankly, one of the problems we have here in the United States is we, we you know, far too often animals are brought to processing a little earlier than they should be. Uh, you, you know, you would like a nice two-year-old beef cattle to, to kind of have that nice, you'll still have nice fat marbling, but it'll also be very flavorful that the age and the extra grass feeding brings in. Uh, you know, so the animals backed up, they ate more grass, it started pumping through, and all of a sudden we have all this wonderful meat at very low prices. I wanted to ask about developing tests because there is some debate and I've heard from some epidemiologists, you, neither you nor I are epidemiologists. And it seems that given FDA rules for medical devices, that these things most certainly would be insisting upon a very high standard of accuracy 
And I guess I can see both sides of that. That is, we want a test to be extremely accurate. And at the same time, if that means no one gets access to a test until we develop a, you know, a fast test that is very accurate, uh, nobody gets one. I can understand that there's a there's a pretty big downside to that as well. Well, you've had Peter Van Doren on several times, and you and your listeners have heard his stories about type one and two errors. Uh, I can repeat them in in my sleep, you know, because I, I work with Peter. Uh, but the idea is true. You, in any sort of a test, you trade off between. Uh, you know, what is the test very good at picking up positive cases or is the test very good at picking up negative cases? Uh, and you have to make a little bit of a trade-off between those two. Just think of it as, as a car alarm. Do you want the car alarm to go off every time it shakes, whether it's someone breaking in or just the wind, or do you want it to not go off even if it shakes and risk someone very smoothly getting into your car and driving off with it? These tests are the same thing. Are we more tolerant of type one errors or type two errors? And they're are arguments in both directions uh, of what we would want. Do we want a cheap test that might have missed some positive cases, but you can take it every day and and build up a, a good history of, of knowing, okay, I might miss it one day, but I'll pick it up the next day when I take the test? Or do we want a more expensive but more accurate test uh, but maybe we only get to take it once a week or once a month uh, because, you know, because it's more expensive, because there's delays in processing it. It's a trade-off. And one of the great things about markets is they will provide lots of different quality levels uh, at and, and let us decide which trade-off is more acceptable. And, you know, granted, sometimes we'll make, you know, bad decisions about what trade-offs we make. Um, but generally, people actually make good decisions on that. And sometimes when we leave it up to to uh, an authority to, you know, impose a single quality level on everyone, what we end up finding is that quality level isn't very good. I want you to evaluate this statement. This is from uh, Joe Biden's campaign website. He writes, this was, I believe, written before the election. As commander in chief, it's Trump's responsibility to get essential workers what they need. Trump should immediately task a supply commander to take command of the national supply chain for essential equipment, medications, and protective gear. We can no longer leave this to the private sector. The supply commander should work with every governor to determine their needs and then coordinate production and delivery of those needs in a timely and efficient manner. In fact, I can even update that, that uh, yesterday the New York Times had a, uh, a little piece out about that, that uh, you know, Biden is showing great restraint and is not going to get too heavily involved in managing this uh, virus, but he is going to lean on the Defense Production uh, Act to, or, uh, to uh, you know, help speed these things to market. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, what in the world are you talking about? I, I should write something about this for the blog, maybe I will, that too many government authorities and too many members of the press think of the Defense Production Act as this magic thing that they wave that suddenly creates all sorts of new supply of things that are needed. Uh, that uh, simply saying, uh, you know, having, a, uh, I guess it's an executive order that you sign, uh, that we need more gowns and masks and gloves makes those things appear in the marketplace. But there's actually very little the Defense Production Act can do to get these things to the marketplace because, you know, it's, it's a process, it's a production. Um, it, you know, it has to, these things are manufactured. So unless, uh, you know, Congress walks out of Capitol Hill and goes to work in a factory and, and starts m making these, you know, helping to make these things, I'm not sure what they think 
uh, you know, this action is going to do. But it sounds good. I've I've taken and you know I've used my executive authority uh, to say uh, you know that there needs to be more of these things. So blammo, there's going to be more of these things. It's a weird thing to hear uh, a presidential candidate uh, and now president elect say that certain uh, production should no longer be left to the private sector. And uh, I feel like we're back in March here with uh, the appreciation for uh, the underappreciation rather of exactly how quickly markets adapted to this and how slowly uh, governments were able to meet their goals. Well, we only need to look back on the uh, nightmare of giving the uh, CDC in Atlanta a monopoly over creating tests for this virus to see what happens when we we put control of this in government hands. Uh, they manufactured, they created a test that that ideally would have worked fine, but their system of then you know, producing it on a mass scale was tainted. So we ended up making tests that didn't work. Uh, their regula- uh, doctors quickly figured out what part didn't work and how to get around it and make the test work right. But the CDC wouldn't let them bend the rules to do that. Uh, uh, CDC regulations said, no, you have to follow exactly what we tell you, even though it's going to give you the wrong result. Um, and then it took a month uh, just about a month before uh, the CDC and and the FDA relented and said, "Okay, uh, you guys can bend the rules and make this test work, and also we're going to let other competitors uh, in, with their own tests into the marketplace." So, yeah, I'd, I would rather have a lot of you know you know another example. Uh, you know, we're seeing now we we see Pfizer has a vaccine that looks like it's going to work extremely well. We have Moderna with a vaccine that looks like it's about to work or that's going to work extremely well. We have what, how many others, Johnson and Johnson and, 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 you know, so many others, you know, just about ready to start releasing their data. Uh, you know, the reason we're going to have so many different uh, vaccines and, and different approaches to how to vaccinate is because we let the marketplace follow a lot of different paths into trying to find, uh, you know, successful products. And we're about to be, quite frankly, be a watch in these successful products, which is wonderful. So why wouldn't we follow that model for pretty much everything else? Tom Fiery is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and managing editor of Regulation Magazine. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.